0: This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. So you've graduated from college and received your university degree in architecture. So what happens next? What exactly does an architect do? What if you don't want to be a designer? Maybe you have interest in how buildings get built, finishes, service, firm management, so many directions you could go And today we're going to talk about a bunch of them and take you inside the firm. Today's episode is brought to you with support from BQE Software. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going inside the firm to take a look at the different roles within an architectural firm. Talk about how architecture school is different from a working architectural office. The various sorts of positions that exist and what you might want to start thinking about as you carve out your career. No matter the size of firm, all of them have similar sets of roles to be filled in order to run the firm and make it successful. These roles can be multiple persons in a large firm, but as firm size decreases, the number of roles taken on by a single person most likely increases. At least that's been my experience. I agree. The smaller it is, the more of these roles you do yourself. That's right. Down to the sole practitioner, who is the single person who has to fill all the roles we're talking about today. Exactly. We've talked many times about the multiple hats worn by those of us in the profession who have worked in small firms. All right, Andrew, let's let's get into the roles and discuss how there is a place for all types of interests and passions within this profession.
1: Yeah, that sounds good.
0: (laughs) You don't sound convinced. We should point out, or maybe have a small primer conversation, that not all of the roles that we're going to go through today are available at every firm, not like as a standalone. Again, if it's a small firm, there might be some capacity of a job that we're going to talk about that's performed by a single person as part of their overarching sets of roles that they perform. Yeah. But based on your interests, it might be a consideration that we should point out that's why you might go to a different size firm.
1: Exactly. Exactly. All of these roles exist. It's just that as the firm size grows, the responsibilities and the need for these grow. And so every firm is doing these in some capacity, but at some point, it takes a full time person to do those things. Yeah. That's why, as you move into a larger firm, sometimes there is a single person that has this one responsibility that we're going to talk about uh, because there's so much of it that needs to be done in a larger firm that it
0: takes a full time position to do that. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And since we like to prepare, We've written all these down, and Andrew and I, we have a document that we share online. So as we're preparing for these episodes, we write down notes and we kind of jot down thoughts and things we want to make sure we cover so that there's an arc to whatever it is that we're talking about. But as we added these roles, half of them show up instantly because they're so omnipresent. They're the low-hanging fruit. Clearly, this role exists. But we wanted to expand it to try to make sure that we could isolate and identify other kind of special capacity type of roles. But I need to say, because I guess this is me being defensive up front. I'm trying to be proactive here. These are not in any particular type of order according to like hierarchy of importance. We have tried to group them so that like when we talk about this silo of responsibility, there's a bunch of responsibilities that might fall under that area of the business. we tried to group those together. But there is no order to how we're going to talk about them.
1: Yeah, we're not starting at the bottom and working our way to the top as far as responsibility or hierarchy or money or any of those sort of things. That's right. And I would also say that this is not a all-inclusive, all-knowing list. There are probably positions, or not probably, there are definitely positions
0: that we didn't have on this list. So don't, don't beat us up for that either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose you can beat us up, but we'll be prepared to defend ourselves. Because we actually, before we hit the record button for this episode, we took one of them off the list because part of the research, I went to the AI definition of roles that are within an architectural firm. And I was like, huh, I don't, I didn't have that on my list. So I put it on there and I asked Andrew, I said, Hey, this is on there. Can you talk about it? Cause I can't, I don't even know what that is. And he goes, I was wondering why you put it on there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we scratched off a couple of these because they're so specialized. And what we're trying to do is say, these aren't jobs at an architectural firm that anybody can have. These are intended to be specialized routes that a person can take. If they've gone to architecture school and they have a degree, what could they possibly find themselves doing once they get into a firm?
1: Yeah, these still take architectural education, in other words, to be able to do
0: these roles that we're going to talk about. Yeah, we didn't put like HR on the list. Yeah. So let's start with what I think is the backbone of any architectural firm, and that is the production side of the business, the production staff, production manager. Okay. Do you agree that it's kind of the backbone of the firm?
1: Yes and no. I think it depends on the size of the firm, but, I mean, that's definitely what makes things go, at least, or gets work done.
0: So the reason why I put this down as the backbone of any architectural firm is I think the product that we create and how it's communicated is through drawings. So, yes, all the other roles that we're going to talk about, the selling and the designing and the detailing, all these have a role to play, but the tool that allows what we do every day to be communicated to the people who build it is the drawings. And I think those people are... I mean, that's why I think they're the backbone. They're the most vital cog in the delivery chain, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I would agree. In a way, I do, but partly... My bent would be the person that gets the job, whether that's the salesman or the principal or the whoever, because you have to have a job to get to the production. Yeah. Not that. Well, for sure.
0: Yeah, I'm making the (laughs) assumption that we all have something to do when we go to the office.
1: Well, yeah, but.
0: Like, even if I look at the most amount of time spent in producing a project, it's in the production side of things.
1: Oh, now that I agree with. That is the bulk of our workload for sure.
0: Yeah, and that's why I go, As a result, it's the bulk of the workload. It's also probably the biggest branch of roles that we have on the entire list. Definitely that true. Yeah. If I was going to break up and say, if I have 20 people standing in front of me, how many are going to fit each one of these roles, the vast majority are going to go down the production side of things. And that could be end up in project manager, project architect, but production, that's where most people end up. I would agree. I'd agree with that part. So I'll let you give this a shot. If you want to, do you want to describe what the production side of things actually is? I was hoping you'd go first so that I could see what you were going to do, but all
1: right. You've got production manager and production staff. So Yeah,
0: because I go, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, being the boss of the people that do the thing that you did, but you're just the boss. It's the same job.
1: I got you. And I would agree to a certain extent, except for the production manager, then you start dealing with a little bit more. But, you know, basically, like you said, this being the backbone or the largest percentage of responsibilities is that you're responsible for putting together the documents and kind of making the building package come together. You spend most of your time converting the concepts into
0: built reality documents. You're creating the instruction list to tell the contractor how to build what the design intent is. That's what the production staff does. But they're also the people that coordinate the documentation that's coming in from the consultants that work on the project. Again, depending upon size of firm, right? Sometimes that's someone else. But, you know, let's get this out of the way. We can't be saying size of firm the whole time because that's the default for this entire episode. If you're in a small firm, yes, you're going to do 50 different things. The lines are going to be blurred. So we're going to talk about this. Like I came from a firm of eight people. There's more than eight roles and responsibilities that are on this list. So clearly everybody did more than one thing. But as you go to larger and larger firms and things become more and more specialized, there is a very specific production staff role and a very specific production manager role. And so that's kind of the capacity that I think that the most value we could bring to this episode would be to talk about is to say, when you're in a firm and this is a specific role, that's what this means. So production is responsible for creating the drawings that the contractor uses to build the job. I think that's the easiest way to kind of define it.
1: Exactly. I think for most people, this is, again 90% of the people this is probably where you start your career i would agree this is the foundation for learning how things go together and what really architecture practice is based on
0: yeah you know it's interesting so when i first got out of school it was just me and one person so i didn't even know that these different roles and responsibilities kind of existed because it was there was no distinction between them all the thing that i find it's interesting now is so where I'm currently at, you do get hired into the design branch of things. You know, they kind of figure out the role that you have. You're either on a designer path or you're on a project architect path. Hmm. And if you end up being selected to be on the designer path, that tends to suggest that there's certain skill sets you have that might be more developed right out of the gate than others. Your critical thinking might be a little bit different. You might be more of a radial thinker. As opposed Mm -hmm. to when you're going on a project architect, there's a linear method in which your brain needs to work because there's a process and there's an order to things. And so it's not a good or a bad thing. It's just different. But I think the vast majority of people, if I look at my own office, probably 80% are project architect path and 20% are designer path. That's kind of in a nutshell, just throwing a dart at a board. That's kind of how that breaks down. Now, there are people that will want to move from one path to the other, and sometimes that works well and sometimes it doesn't. But generally speaking, Andrew, I think you're 100% correct when you say the vast majority of people, when they start day one in a job, it's going to be on the production side of things. Wow, I'm 100% right. I got to mark that day in history. Well, you're 100% right on the 80% of <laughs> it. <laughs> okay, so also siloed over in this thing is construction administration. And. When I was jotting my own notes down to what would I want to talk about for the construction administration, really what I ended up with is that there's an an entire department that's within this category of construction administration. In our office, we have guys who, what they do is they review the execution of the work. They do the job site visits. They have the meetings. There's other people that go to those meetings. The project architect and manager go to those meetings. The designer will go to those meetings, but the actual like check-and-pay applications and making sure that the work is being done as per the construction documents, that falls to the the very specialized role of the folks within our construction administration department.
1: Okay. That makes sense to me.
0: Yeah. and So you think I nailed – I got 100% on that one. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> but I do think that
1: you're correct in that construction administration – You could split that into a large chunk of roles as well. That's kind of what I think that you're meaning, right? I mean, it's siloed, but there's a whole nother. Yeah. You could break that down again. But for me, I think that this is also one of those really important areas at the start of your career that you need involvement in. But
0: that's a whole nother rabbit hole, so maybe we won't go down it for for
1: the sake of length.
0: That would be an interesting conversation to have. For instance, I was having a conversation with a person that I used to work with And she's been out of school for, I don't know, five or six years. And she told me yesterday she's never done a punch list. While I didn't find that incredible, I was a little surprised that that was true. And I started thinking, I wonder how many people in my office that are not within that row of construction administration folks have ever actually done a punch list.
1: Yeah, or just been out to the job site to look at things. Again, it's that learning process about how things get put together that I think is really important.
0: And I should clarify, at least from my standpoint, people get on the job sites and they look at stuff, but there's a difference when you go out there from an educational standpoint to look and see what you did or what you drew or how it actually works, as opposed to the guy who's critically going out there and saying, that doesn't meet the specifications that are in the drawings and that's not installed correctly. Yeah, for sure. They really have a much more construction angle to their skill set than any other kind of aspects of what makes up an architect in the traditional definition they're not involved in design and they're not involved in the construction documentation they're purely the mouthpiece between our design intent and documentation and what the contractor's doing on site it's an execution job and I know there's nuances within that and it's making me think we should have a show on construction administration
1: yeah I'm just trying to keep myself from going down rabbit holes with every word that's coming out of your mouth yeah but yeah so it's fun. it's good
0: yeah, you know what? And I'm happy to have more words come out of your mouth, you know? <laughs> yeah, sure. So if, if you don't have to agree, if I say something that you don't agree with, supplement to it, for sure. I will,
1: but I'm just trying to keep it succinct here. We're just talking about roles, yeah. not the reasons for them or the ideologies behind them. That's a whole different thing.
0: Okay, so let's get to the next one that's on this list, specification writer. Yeah. So I'll preface this by saying, until I came to my current office... I've never had a dedicated specification writer on payroll. I've either written and assembled the specifications on my projects, or we hired a third party.
1: Yeah, somebody outside the office yeah. to do it. Yeah.
0: Which, for the record, has never worked out very well for me.
1: I would agree. That's the reason why I, mean, I write my own specs and have my own master spec that I use for...
0: While I'm not trying to suggest that there aren't third party specification companies out there that do a good job, my experience just hasn't been very good. There's been too many holes. And I go, well, why didn't you do that? Well, you didn't tell me. The disconnect between somebody not in your office, more involved in what you're doing, just seems like it creates opportunities for drop balls.
1: And that's sort of the reason why I've never done this, because I always felt like, well, they're not going to understand the project like I do. Yeah. It doesn't mean they're not good at, at writing specs, but if they're not familiar with every last part of the project and you know, what the intent is or what's
0: happening, there's opportunity for holes. Well, you know, there's an aspect to specification writing that I don't think certainly wasn't ever made clear to me when I was in my formative years. But there's kind of a research and development aspect to what they do because part of the spec writer's responsibility is they're supposed to make sure that they're identifying the, the best construction methodologies and how something's supposed to be used and what's the current standard and what's the testing requirements that are in place to make sure that the standards to which something is being built, measures up to, and as a result, they do a lot of product research, and they can help in a substantial way, at least in our in my office now, where we actually have a spec writer on staff. They assist in material selection. They get involved in vendor relationships at times. They can perform quality management reviews. They provide technical advice. There's a lot of skill set to what they do other than just hey, I'm sitting down with my Word document and typing for the next three weeks.
1: This is probably, if it's a standalone person, they've got the most technical knowledge about all the parts that are going into the building and the methodologies to install those than anybody in the office.
0: Yes, it's definitely a technical role. I feel like they're the accountants
1: (laughs) what times. (laughs) Well, what do you mean by that? Most of the ones I've known, they're, they're not, not a number cruncher kind of person, but they're a data cruncher kind of person. And the ones I've known,
0: are, they're just a different mentality than most architects. We shouldn't cast this as this is the only way that these folks are defined. But yes, my experience with them is that they are more into the execution aspect of what architecture is, not the aesthetics of what it is. The role that they play, like let's say that you're a young person, you go to architecture school, and you really like architecture and you like what it does and the role that it plays in society but you just don't like designing that much. This is a viable path that you might consider. I think
1: it's more about if you really like how things are put together, what the coolest, newest material is and all those kind of things,
0: that is a valid path. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to the next one on my list. Interestingly enough, segues into business development. I debated this as a responsibility within the office because while this doesn't necessarily have to be an architect, I do think it helps but to that extent, everybody in the office does business development. Everyone who does project architecture, if they're a project architect, if they're a project manager, if they're construction administration, they all do business development because I still maintain after doing this for as long as I've done it, that architecture business is a personality-driven business and we get the work that we do because we do a good job on it and clients are happy with what we do. So wait, so the point of this is that Everybody who has any interface with another human being outside of the office in the capacity of doing their job is doing business development. I agree, but I disagree. Well, you can't disagree. You can say that maybe it's not, like there's a role for this, but... We're
1: talking about defined roles. So there's a role for business development, and that person's only job is to go out and cultivate, in my mind, new client relationships, not existing client relationships, because that's not development, that's maintenance. Their job is to go out and try to find new clients, and that's their full-time job, not they're doing that and they're doing production work or construction administration work. This is a dedicated person that their entire job is to cultivate new business relationships.
0: I agree with everything you said, but the thing that makes me wonder, this whole list is about you're an architect. Is this a direction that your career could take? Could you go into business development as an architect with an architectural education to go do work? And my answer is yes, you still could do that. I think it helps
1: when you're actually able to talk about what you know. And for some people that are really outgoing and easy to get along with and that everybody likes, those kinds of people, but again, you might not like design or you might not wanna be into technical things,
0: but you can sell and get new work, develop new relationships. Yes. So let's move on from that one, because the next one on this list is marketing. And the way way you defined it, I don't know what the difference between business development and marketing is. Because it's it's the same idea that, okay, the idea of marketing in my past working life was pretty much non-existent. Our marketing efforts were, I wrote a blog, I did things in the community, I volunteered for roles on professional organizations and sat on boards, and as a result, I met other people. Mm -hmm. I go, that's also business development. And that's, that was a byproduct of me doing my job as an architect that led to business development, which supports my premise that everybody's always doing business development. So, okay. So I know there's a specialized role for it. That's why it's on the list. I just don't really know what that looks like. Even though I'm in a firm with 120 people, we don't have that role.
1: Really? Interesting. There's a couple of engineering firms I know that have around 50 to 80 people and they have folks that do just straight strictly business development and their job is is that they go go around to these community meetings or they set up meetings with potential clients that they want to gain their business and you know they go to dinner they go play golf they go do these salesman type activities in my opinion which is different to me than marketing because marketing is putting together you know proposals and RFQs and SOQs and any other sort of marketing work like if you have a website you're doing that stuff and it's not necessarily business development because it's a little bit broader you're not specifically targeting a single group
0: or a single client that you want to reel in yeah i hear and i'm not disagreeing with you because i go the the people who would be responsible for business development in our office are the principals and partners are the principals probably yes you yeah, know i would agree and they have other jobs they do than just business development. It's kind of a a side gig to a certain extent, and it's a result of who they know and who they meet and then fostering conversations with those people.
1: Sure, I don't disagree. And I agree with your notion that everybody does business development in a certain sense, but I don't think that if I am the production manager and I go to client meetings that I would consider that to be business development.
0: Well, you know, the only reason I do is because... You know, I kind of took the attitude a long time ago that it's not just the people that you're talking to. It's not just the people in the room. It's who the people in the room know. So if you make a relationship and you're a production architect and you're going to OAC meetings and everybody that you're working with likes you and thinks you're good at your job, they're going to let other people know. And they're going to say, that guy's good. They did a nice job. We liked working with them. Maybe it's just indirect business development. And it's what we really should be focusing on is more direct business development.
1: And I guess maybe that's probably the distinction that I'm trying to make. Yeah. But yes. Yeah.
0: Again, you're always an ambassador
1: for your firm.
0: Yeah. So maybe this is my small firm mentality kind of creeping out here. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. So Andrew and I are currently sitting with Steve Burns, FAIA, the Chief Creative Officer with BQE Software, the developers for BQE Core, product that is backed by 24 years of firm management experience is a complete and flexible business platform made for architects by architects to help manage their firms so that they can focus on what they love to do the most the education of architects does not prepare them with any level of competency in business in fact it's quite the opposite that design is stressed to the point where business has become a pejorative this is something that i think all three of us can agree that architects come out of architecture school poorly prepared from a business standpoint.
1: Zero business
0: knowledge when you come out of school. You might have taken a business math class, but that's probably about it. So Steve, how can BQE Core help these architects with poor business backgrounds?
2: Part of the problem is the schools don't put the emphasis on it. We all come out graduating where the glory goes to the best designers in the class. And then they think, well, you're going to get that education when you go work at a firm, but the firms aren't doing a good job of identifying those people within the office who really have propensity to be good at business. So they aren't doing a great job of bringing them into the fold. So Steve, can you tell us a little bit about BQE Core? Well, our roots probably began in the tracking of time and the creating of invoices, which has always been a giant headache for architectural firms. Getting their employees to fill out time cards (laughs) is one of those things Uh that Everybody laughs about when you hear about it. It's impossible.
0: I hate it. it. It's my least favorite thing to do.
2: Right, exactly. So, you know, our objective is eventually to make that something that is not like going to visit the dentist and getting your teeth cleaned. It's really going to be something that should become effortless. So we worked very hard to make the effort about one minute to two minutes a day really is all it should take from anybody to track their time. And eventually, we think you don't even need to track your time because we're using systems that could be self-tracking. So there's technologies out there that can do that. Today, we'd like to start implementing that in some of our software. So time in building our roots. And then it evolved over the years where our customers started telling us about their pain points, their problems. For me personally, I created ArchiOffice, which was my pain point. I didn't make it a commercial product. I made it to solve my own pain point. I started a firm in 1993 and fell out of love with architecture because I was running an office all day. I wasn't getting to do the fun stuff. I had to basically delegate that to say to people in the office, hey, you go have the fun. I got to go deal with the... Yeah, I got to go do the work and I gotta the business do the work. stuff. For me, my response to any problem is it's through good design. It's design a good solution. And so I didn't know how to do software, but I found FileMaker Pro, which is what you were using in the early days. And I learned scripting language. So I built ArchiOffice, which I called ArchiOffice Pro because it was FileMaker Pro. I thought, oh, we'll call it in the office that. And we ran the firm with this for many years before I turned it into commercial product. So for me, it came out of, I'm an architect, I'm losing the love of my profession because I wasn't trained properly to respect that business is an integral part of being practiced. So I built a software to take care of that for me. And eventually it did allow me to return to spending more time with working with my clients and working on the designs. But time and billing was the essential basic problem that everybody seems to struggle with. How one manages the work breakdown structure, all the tasks you do within every one of your phases is, is another matter that we grew into as a commercial product. My original ArchiOffice office for my firm did everything. So now you've
0: created this software to really help architects do the things that they don't want to do really effectively, really efficiently, so that they can focus on what they do want to do.
2: That's right. I mean, it's letting you return to what you love most and really why your clients hire you. They don't hire you to be running a business. They hire you for the fact that you have these architectural skills and they have a problem and that skill is what they're hiring you for. So Steve has done something really nice. BQE Software has done something really nice. Life
0: of an Architect podcast listeners can receive 10% discount off annual course subscription when you sign up today for a free trial. Visit www.bqe.com forward slash LOAA to learn how the complete and flexible business platform made for architects by architects will help manage your firm so you can focus on what you love to do the most. And we'll put that link at the bottom of the page in the show notes. So if you're driving down the road, you don't have to pull over and write it down. Just go to the website later and the link will be there. Steve, thanks for being with us today. We appreciate the time.
2: Well, thank you very much, Bob and Andrew. I really enjoyed this. It was a little daunting to come in here and see these fancy microphones and (laughs) and two men in black.
0: Nothing Uh, but the best for you,
2: Steve. I love your podcast. I love your blog. I think what you two are doing is just phenomenal. And so thank you. All right, Steve. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Steve. Let's go on to designer.
0: My perception of the title designer is that this is the role that most people who finish architecture school think that's what they're going to be or I don't know, maybe that was just the thought process from the school I graduated from, you know, everyone who graduated from UT thinks, well, I'm going to be a designer. That was my perception.
1: I think that's true of every school, right? Because most, at least in my experience, right, that is what school is about. Almost 90% of your architectural education is about design. So therefore it makes sense that everybody thinks that they're going to be a designer or wants to be a designer.
0: Whether or not I agree with that, which I'm not so sure that I do, the reality of the conversations I have and the emails that I receive is there are a lot of people out there that don't think that they're going to be a designer. Interesting. I don't want to say, oh, like for some reason, if you don't think you want to be a designer when you get out of architecture school, there's something broken with you. I don't think that's true. I think that's just the, my perception because of where I went to school or the people that I hung out with that that seems to be the norm. But I can look at my office, I now see, all right, here's 20 people that their kind of main responsibility is design. Here's 80 people and their main responsibility is anything other than design. But they're still designing because that's what makes good projects. It's not just the big ideas, it's the execution of the little ideas. But they're very happy not being in that quote unquote designer role.
1: Yeah, I mean, I understand that. I agree with the idea that it may be, if I came out of Harvard GSD, I would assume that oh, man, wherever I go, I'm going to be a designer because I came from Harvard. But that the emphasis of school is mainly on design. And so maybe I should say, therefore, you think that that is what the profession is about, which is, again, today what we're discussing is that it's not, right? There's so many other roles that you can do.
0: Yeah, the truth is, is the vast majority of people will not be in what is traditionally thought of as a designer role.
1: Yeah, like their sole job. I mean, you talked about when you first I guess when you were working at the big firm when you were younger, that that was all you did was design. You'd do it, hand it off to somebody else so you'd never see what happened to it.
0: Yeah, I never saw it again. I didn't, wasn't involved in detailing it. I wasn't involved in the construction of it. None of that stuff.
1: Yeah, and for some people, that's great. They would love that. But to me, I would not. I revel in the other parts of that, the parts that you handed off that somebody else is doing. That's the part I really enjoy. Yeah.
0: Okay, so let's move on to the next one on this list, which is technical designer. And I included that one because... I just wanted to touch on the fact that there are specialty designers out there like building envelope design, people who have expertise in detailing. You know, we have a guy up at our office who details all the interiors, everything that we're working with. He's the go-to guy on how you assemble all the kind of interior details in our firm. And that's his role. So he sits at a desk and he drafts details all day long. And if people have questions on material transitions or how do I do this or how do I do that, that's our repository of knowledge. That guy. <laughs> that guy. That guy. And actually, in the floor above us, we have a firm that is a curtain wall design firm. And all they do is design curtain walls around the world. Sure.
1: I think the, the distinction to try to separate these two apart is, to me, designer, as we talked about before, is more of a big picture, big move kind of person. And that this is a technical thing gets more into smaller concepts and ideas about design. You're still designing every detail that happens in a building. And the technical designer may be the one that gets handed down the Frank Gehry crumbled piece of paper and say, build that. And your job as a technical designer is to make it happen. Yeah,
0: figure out how to invent some new way to hang this panel off of some structure that doesn't exist. Exactly, those kind of things. And that's a technical designer. Well, we also have the title graphic designer. While this might not normally be the first thing that comes to mind when you think architectural graduate, I can tell you that it is a thing because we have that role in our office. And when I worked for the big firm when I was a younger man, they had a graphics department within that organization that I was a part of as well. And we did branding studies and color studies and signage, execution, wayfinding. There was anything architectural to it other than proportion and balance and color theory. I mean, things that architects are trained to have some understanding with, but we didn't have a specific graphical design education. There are architects in that role.
1: Yeah, I can't really add a lot to this, but I agree that it's a thing. I know a couple of firms that do have graphic design departments within their firm they may be doing graphic design for something that is not even a project getting built by the office or designed by the office. Right. This is another arm of the firm that does its own work, can do work for the projects that are being designed in the office, but also corporate identities and all these kind of things that happen outside of we're going to do
0: a building. Yeah. So that's a viable thing. I mean, so yeah, I'll just leave it at that. The next one that's on our list, I will admit this is a new thing to me. And I only put it on there because we have a mutual friend Evan Troxell, international man of all things amazing. (laughs) And that's also true. You get to know that guy, the stuff that he's into, it's it's all over the place. That guy's into everything. Yeah, he is a Renaissance man for sure. On the highest order. So uh, rather than talking specifically about his actual title, it's a, a digital practice lead. He's the director of the digital practice for the firm that he works for. So I emailed him a couple days ago and I said, hey, would you mind sending me a description of like your role, which is, like I said, it's actually titled director of digital practice. And of course, in true Evan fashion, he over delivered. (laughs) So you got a 10 page. He literally sent me enough information that I think I'm now prepared to open my own digital practice consulting firm. (laughs) Nice. But here's the cliff notes version of what he sent me. He's basically responsible for integrating design technology, BIM technology, regenerative design, visualization, VR groups, develop and incorporate data collection and query for purposes of design intelligence, automation, simulation, and downstream exploration for artificial intelligence. And I was like, I don't even know what half that stuff means.
1: (laughs) I was like, are you going to explain all that?
0: I'm not. (laughs) We should just put a link to the videos that Evan makes on his YouTube channel. Yeah, there you go. No, he works for a good-sized firm. They have offices in multiple parts in the country and abroad. And he's the guy that is trying to look forward to all these emerging technologies and how they can be used so that we can do our jobs better, more clever, more efficiently, push the envelope. I mean, if you're a technical person and you like this kind of emerging technologies and trying to Think outside the box for here's this technology. How can we use it in this field to do something amazing? That's what he's doing. I'm kind of
1: jealous as a techno geek myself. That sounds like a fantastically fun job.
0: And he's perfectly suited for it, for sure. Because, I mean, like you can just ask him any random question about technology. And he's pretty well versed on it. He's up on all this stuff, which is why when I thought, oh, we should probably include some emerging technologies role on this list for the people that have kind of a technology bent to their interests. He instantly is the guy that came to mind.
1: I'm not sure how many firms have this as a specific role, but I definitely think it's an emerging position. More and more now as a profession, we're trying to figure out how to integrate all of these new technologies and even existing ones, but how do we incorporate them into our practice and into the field of architecture? And this is the job that attempts to do that.
0: Yeah, and I think that him being an an actual architect allows him to find the corollaries between this emerging technology and how it could benefit the practice. I think that's why that connection's there. That's a good one. Check the box on digital practice lead, because I know there's going to be people that are going to be interested in probably looking into that a bit further. So, But in that same kind of technology bent to the practice, I put rendering a renderist or I don't know what the actual title would be, but people who actually create the renderings to help communicate what it is we're doing to clients. Cause that was not a thing in my last office, but we have a guy who's dedicated to producing amazing graphics and renderings in our office. Oh, do you really? Like it's a single person that does it for all the different projects. Yeah. You know, and, and I'll tell you, I was sitting there thinking about it and I was like, you know, there's some people out there that love this stuff so much. Like they exist in the fifth dimension, whatever the fifth dimension is. Okay. (laughs) I don't know what it is. That's a rendered dimension though. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be rendered. (laughs) So I mean, he comes to work and this is what he does all day, every day. And he's in demand. You know, when we're busy, we have to go outside the firm because he can't handle what we need done. We have enough work to where that guy is 100% booked well in advance. So meaning you need
1: another one of him. Not that he can't handle it as as in his abilities, but that it's the workload is so much. you got to find somebody else to do it.
0: That's right. The different software platforms he works in, like he's good. The Lumions and the Enscapes and the Photoshops. And I walked by his desk one day and had this amazing rendering that was on there. And he was in Photoshop and he was touching some stuff up. And he scrolled and I was like, he looked like he had about 300 layers set up in that Photoshop file.
1: Making it work. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He's making it work. And they look cool.
1: Yeah, they're kind of, they're like artists. So that's a job. That's a thing. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. You said you didn't do that in your old job. Did you guys just not do renders? or You just didn't have a person that did it. Everybody just did their
0: own. We didn't really do renders. We would have perspectives and we might jump into, depending on what firm you're talking about, we might get into SketchUp. And we started using VR so that people could put on goggles and look into it. But for the most part, we built models. We used models as our tool to discuss what people were looking at. Now that I work in a business where we have much more development work that goes into it, Mm -hmm. we might get hired to do a yield study and a building design for the purposes of selling a piece of dirt speculatively. You're doing lots of concept stuff that has to look pretty so we can sell
1: someone the idea of spending the money to do something there or buy this piece of property.
0: That's right. So there's different needs for where I'm at now versus where I was at before. Gotcha. Gotcha. We're getting towards the end of my list because we've been at this for a while. Mm -hmm. So I kind of left some of the more traditional roles to the very end because I think everyone kind of understands them. So the first one is like project manager. What I jotted down here is that that person is responsible for coordination of all project efforts, administrative and technical, to ensure the most efficient and cost-effective execution of assigned projects. Now, there's a bunch more things that they do. The project manager we have, they're in charge of all the production staff. They're the one who sets up the meetings. They're the ones that make sure that the schedule is set and that it's that it's met. They're the one that interfaces with the design team to say, here's an issue, we need a solution for it, or what was your intent in this area so that we can execute what the vision is. They're the puppet master that gets everything ready to be sent out of the office for someone else to take a look at.
1: They're the captain of the ship or the person that has to wrangle all of the involved parties and keep them on track and keep the project moving forward and, and make sure that hopefully nothing falls
0: through the cracks. Right. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> so along with that, I have the project architect. In my mind, the easiest way to describe it is the project architect does all the exact same things that the project manager does, but the project architect has day-to-day responsibility of a project, and the project manager might be running a bunch of different projects. That's been my experience.
1: Oh yeah, I was curious as how you were going to divide those. So you think a project manager manages more than a single project, but a project architect is, that's...
0: Yeah, that's their, their job. So the project architect, every day they go to work, that's their job, that's what they do. And they execute the vision as they see it or as they're directed by the project manager. Project manager has the role to oversee several project architects and several different projects. Okay, all right. And one suggests that the project manager is senior, not just in terms of stature, but maybe an experience to project architects, which allows them to move along their path, maybe a bit more efficiently and a bit more effectively, which is why they kind of puppet master several projects where the architect is still, they're good at what they do, but their focus is singular. Okay, I can see that as a distinction. Yeah, and of course, again, even though i, I kind of said we need to not make the distinction between big and small <laughs> firms cuz
1: yeah i knew was, i know it's coming
0: in smaller firms project architect project manager it's the same job
1: well but i even think at at a certain point even in mid to larger firms you have project architect that is running several projects you haven't got to that point where there's a project manager that the project architect has that job until you get to fairly large
0: yes oh, Well, i hope that's what i said cuz that's how i meant it and then the last one that i have on my list is the And I go, well, this is a stupid one to put on the list, but (laughs) they, I had it on there. So I thought, well, all right, maybe we should include it just because if there is a, a ladder that you're climbing, this is the top rung of that. And that is the principal and the partner. The only reason why I included that is because I think that principals and partners, their responsibility is really to help establish goals and objectives for the firm. Like what kind of projects do they want to go after? And a lot of times they're the ones that are supposed to be selling the work and forging relationships with clients and making sure that every person that we just got through listing has something to do when they come to the office every day.
1: To summarize in a way, I would say once you get to that point, the the amount of what I would call traditional idea of architecture, you're not doing much of that. That may be 20% of your job and the other 80% is business related.
0: Yeah, you're... you're positioning the firm to take advantage of opportunities for growth and marketplace expansion and looking at the profitability and quality enhancement and professional development of the people that work in your office and
1: yeah you're more about the firm as a whole and it's health and well-being and that becomes your project not this building on 23rd street
0: there you go that's a good way to put it so clearly there are multitude of options for your career in architecture, other than just the de facto designer. Certainly. I think the takeaway here is that even if you're not the world's best designer or a superb artist, the field of architecture, construction, and design has a position that could utilize your skill set and more to the point, the things that you are interested in. For me, as a,
1: I mean, even when I was in school, but even now that I'm teaching, There are certain students that I can look at and go, man, this guy is going to be a great project manager. He may not be a designer, but they are perfect to fill this role. Again, yeah, the takeaway is that don't get discouraged if design isn't your thing, but you still love architecture because there's a spot for you.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. I'm kind of surprised. That was never really made clear. The conversation you and I had today, to a certain extent, I've never had, not only in my life, I certainly didn't have it when I was in school. And so the Mm -hmm. idea of understanding what I could do with this education that I'm receiving, like what path is laid out before me, no one ever said, you can really do anything you want. There's so many roles within an architectural firm that you can carve out a path that suits your interests and your skill set.
1: I was just going to say, even within the architectural process, I mean, I know we talked about firms, but in the process in general, there's still so many paths that you can carve out. So
0: don't feel like that if you're not a designer, you're screwed. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I think if you're not a designer, you're, you're better off. There's actually way more roles for those Way people. more spots for you, yeah. All right, so I think that was a good conversation about the direction you could go with an architectural degree within an architectural firm. But we've been at this for a while, and I think it's time for this episode's hypothetical question. Are you ready to make podcast recording history? <laughs> I don't know if this one's going to be history, but sure, let's do it. This is a historic moment. Okay. This particular question has been on our hypothetical questions list for like six or eight or nine. I mean, a while. Mm. And I keep skipping over it. And it's not because I don't like it, it's because of where I think the conversation could go. Meaning, this could get embarrassing for one of us. And by us, I mean me. Oh, all <laughs> right. All right. So here's the hypothetical question for this episode If you could give yourself a nickname, that everyone would have to use, what would it be?
1: Um, Yeah. I
0: was like, Andrew, die.
1: <laughs> no, actually, you know, it's funny. I used to have a nickname that in you know, high school or whatever, a lot of people called me, and maybe even in college, some. Of course, it's a derivative of my name, which is pretty simple, but it's Hawk, H-A-W-K. People would just call me that. People call my dad Hawkeye, which makes me laugh. I always liked it when people called me that. It just seemed cool or cooler. You know, I don't know why, but
0: it made me feel nice. Oh, that's interesting. Did you have any nicknames growing up that you didn't like? (laughs) That's what I was trying to think of. I don't know. You know, I mean, growing up, everybody
1: called me Andy, A-N-D-Y. And as I got older, I decided that's not what I wanted to be called because it sounded like a little kid, but I just didn't like it. And so that's when I switched to Andrew. But otherwise, I can't recall... At least not any that I would repeat on the podcast. <laughs> nicknames that people called me. Those were probably aren't nicknames. Those were just names. But nicknames that I had,
0: really, growing up. I don't really know. There was a guy that lived behind me who was, like, one year younger than me. And he had a younger brother who's maybe two or three years younger, younger than me. I couldn't stand him. I thought he was a jerk. <laughs> he had a nickname for me, <laughs> which is funny, but it was so stupid. And, like... He tried getting it to stick and it wouldn't stick. And people are like, yeah, that's really not, that's not good. So instead of being Bob Borson, it was butt Butson.
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> actually pretty awesome. I mean, I think that's yeah. funny, right? But yeah, I'm sad it yeah, didn't I stick. Mean, <laughs> it, yeah.
0: You know, it works when you're seven. Yeah. or Or
1: 47 apparently, but yeah.
0: <laughs> and it only works if you like have to say the whole thing. Yeah, for sure. But so I talked to my dad about this and. He wanted everyone to call him Duke when he was younger. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But he couldn't get anybody to, ma- he couldn't make it stick. Yeah. Nobody wanted to call him that.
1: That's funny. Again, I think that you know Hawk would be it, but I don't really know. There's a lot of people that call me Drew. I mean, but they're just derivative of, of my name, not like some random nickname. Drew is not a nickname. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. So it's like, I don't really know of anything, a nickname that I would give myself. Yeah, I can't really. I mean, all-knowing,
0: omnipotent, whatever. Right?
1: That would be it. (laughs) I don't think that would stick
0: either. So none. So you're like, no, I I don't have one.
1: Yeah, I don't have one, and I don't know that I want one.
0: Interesting. Well, you know. So my name's actually not Bob; it's Robert. Yeah. And so, but Bob is kind of a nickname in and of itself. So when I was in college, one of my professors, Sinclair Black, he used to call me Doctor Bob. For some reason, I'm sure that. Bob's just one of those nicknames. I had a bunch of kids when I was in high school called me Bullet Bob, but that was because Bullet Bob Hayes for the Dallas Cowboys, which I wasn't fast. So it was just, all right, well, here's a Bullet Bob here. So we'll call you Bullet Bob. Yeah. And so I didn't, Dr. Bob, that didn't really happen. You know, I had like 10 people for six years call me that. It was professors for some reason, like calling me Dr. Bob. The closest thing I had to like a cool nickname was when I was playing soccer. I have bad knee. I dislocated it when I was in high school, and it didn't tear, so it's it's loose. And so it's popped out once or twice since then, but I can just pop it back in. It's pretty gruesome, actually. Like, your leg's bent the wrong way. And you just have to whack on your kneecap and get it back in place. And I was playing a, a soccer game, and the team we were playing was, they were all Hispanic folks, the team I was on, which had no Hispanic people on it. And I'm playing, whatever, whatever, and there's a big collision, and my my knee pops out of place. And I go down, and my legs at, you know, like it's trying to say it's 2.30 in the afternoon kind of thing. And it's gruesome. So I start whacking on it, pop it into place, get up, walk off the field, and then basically collapse back down on the side. And after the game, all these folks came over, and they're like, you know, shaking my hand and like saying, hope you're okay, that kind of thing. I got the nickname El Presidente. Cause I was getting such respect from the other team. (laughs) And so for about 10 years, I had this group of people that I was El Presidente and I go, that's a pretty good nickname. If someone's going to give you one, it's way better than butt Butson."
1: (laughs) It's in fact the opposite of butt Butson.
0: Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Well, what if you had a a nickname that you thought somebody like you couldn't like, if you run across people that have nicknames, you're like, that's a weird nickname. I'm not going to call you that, but they want you to call you that. Like, hey, my name is Eagle Eye Miller. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not calling you that. Yeah. Fred, whatever, whatever your name is, I'm not, I'm not going to call you your nickname. Have you run across anybody like that? Uh, it's funny, there was just,
1: I'm trying to remember where I was at recently, and there was somebody that that was like, their nickname, and they like used it for everything. And it was no relationship to their real name whatsoever. His name was Jim something something, and, but everyone called him Stretch. That was his name tag, and like it was like everywhere. And I'm like, Dude, what? Well, I don't understand. that doesn't. You're not tall, and you're not. You know, it's like, a, you know, hey Jim, how's it going? Because I ain't calling you Stretch, because I don't understand it.
0: <laughs> yeah, like it implies that we have a, a certain type of relationship with one another. Yeah,
1: and it wasn't like his first name was terrible either. You know, I mean, it was just some normal name. But every once in a while, I run across those things, and it's like you've really embraced the nickname that you got when you were eight years old. Now that you're a fifty-eight year old person i'm not
0: sure about that there's a guy here locally he goes by pistol nice pistol and i'm like yeah his name is pete Ah. but he just goes by pistol and i'm like it's never happening (laughs) i will never ever call you pistol
1: (laughs) that'd be like calling your dad duke unless his name was duke yeah (laughs) what's
0: up what's up duke hey duke how's it going oh (laughs) you mean chris yeah, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're talking to Chris. Actually, my sister has a, f- a couple of friends. They all have nicknames. They have all stuck, so they all refer to them by their nickname as if that's their real name. Yeah. And one of the guys' nickname is The Senator. <laughs> and I don't even know what his first name is. And this dates back 20-something years. I've never heard his name other than, have you talked to The Senator? And I go, that's, that's a awesome I said say, that's name. pretty it cool, back-
1: actually. Like, if I would be... I'm the senator. All right. That's sweet. I mean, El Presidente is pretty cool, but I feel like the senator is even more like. But see,
0: but he never refers to himself as the senator, just like I don't refer myself as El Presidente. I don't even refer to myself as Bob. Oh, I know.
1: But I mean, like other people. I've
0: never heard it come out of his mouth, but everyone, when they're talking about him, he's referred to as the senator.
1: Yeah, I'm saying, how cool would that be? That sounds legit, right? Like he could be the senator. I mean, El Presidente is a is got a thing, but like if everybody goes, yeah, well, the senator, da 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 da, and you're like, wait, what? Really?
0: Yeah, yeah. I take it back. Actually, I do think I know his name. I think it's Tom, <laughs> Senator Tom, <laughs> Senator. That would be the other thing to call, like Senator Tom. And the thing is, he's he's a super nice guy, but he's like short and he's kind of round and he's like the last thing you would imagine, like senator. You would think you know, like tall and stately looking and good looking, and and he's like really not a lot of those things. <laughs> oh, poor Tom. He is like a really nice guy, even though I haven't talked to him in you know a long time, but
1: maybe that's the, if there was an adjective or something there. you know if you were be if you were to be called again Dr. Bob or President Bob, I might could get into something like that if it was I don't know, you know President Andrew, but I don't know about <laughs> I don't know about like just being called the president or whatever.
0: yeah, but that's just it. you gotta your nickname cannot be in addition to your regular name. It needs to supplant it in its entirety. Like, he's not Senator Tom. He's just Senator. Yeah, the Senator. I got you. I wouldn't be El Presidente Bob. Bob. I'm, I'm just El Presidente. I know. Right. That's. I understand the way they work. But I will say that I did, I gave myself a nickname when I was in middle school. And keep in mind, this would have been, God, how old would I have been? Sixth grade. This would have been how in the we, 80s. Oh, yeah. Well, it would have been, it would have been 1980. So I was like 12. Yeah. Right. So in 1980, the nickname I gave myself was Big Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that has a much different connotation now than it might have had when you're a 12 year old in 1980. Yeah. And sure. so I, I literally would go to like arcade game places. If uh, I got a high score, I would be Big Daddy. That was that's <laughs> funny. <laughs> and it really had more to do, I think, because of Big Daddy Kane.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, that's just gonna say like at about that time in my life as well. I might have been like DJ Hawk or MC Hawk, right? Like <laughs> those are the nicknames I tried to give myself during that sort of time period.
0: I absolutely would not want anybody <laughs> to call me Big Daddy now.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I think it'd be kind of awesome. I say, hey, Big Daddy, what's up?
0: Well, maybe that's like what's well, opposite. Like if you're if you're short, they call you Stretch, for instance, or. Yeah, but that seems like you know, an insult.
1: I don't want my nickname to be an insult, because I can get those on my own. I don't need to be called that every day.
0: But maybe that's what it is. Maybe, you know, that guy being called Senator was called Senator because he was like the last person you would think of when you think of the word senator. Or maybe so. Maybe I was El Presidente because I'm the least presidential material. <laughs> you know, I don't you know, maybe it's ironic is what it was, because there was nothing big daddy about me when I was twelve years old. <laughs>
1: Oh, don't sell yourself short, man. Come on.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure you uh, were
1: quite the ladies' man, Big Daddy.
0: Yeah. That that wasn't even on my radar screen, I'm pretty sure. So, okay. Another highbrow conversation to end the episode on.
1: Yeah, we're good at those. It's our wheelhouse for sure.
0: Okay, MC Hawk. (laughs) I think we've reached a point where I'm going to call this show a wrap. So thank you for being with us today for episode 43, Inside the Firm. We would also like to thank BQE for their gracious support of today's episode.
1: If you like today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds or so and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit the subscribe button so you can get fresh new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks.
0: While you're there, but only if you're in a good mood and feel like showing us some appreciation, Please leave us some feedback as we'd like to hear your thoughts on the show and a five-star, that's-what-I-want-to-do rating.
1: Be sure to visit the original theoriginallifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, info, links, and photos from this episode.
0: Be sure to stick around until the very end, and maybe we'll include some outtakes from the show to reward or punish you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Cheers. Take it easy, everybody. this is life I hate when I do that this is life of I need what (laughs) we're really off today
1: (laughs) I know sorry Andrew I'm Uh, assuming you were meant to write Andrew right no I think that that was part of the bit that you wrote that I didn't edit I didn't write that
0: I didn't write that
1: (laughs) I didn't write any of that
0: (laughs) let's let's move on or this is going to be an 11-hour episode yeah, I, I get you're trying to say something without it coming out like you're insulting these people. Yeah, exactly. But now we just sound like we're trying to walk it back. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'll just cut it all out. That was disgusting. <laughs> uh, could you hear that? Yes. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So that's just it. You paused because you had to mentally skip over popping.
1: No, I had to skip over stanky.
0: Mine says stanky. you're supposed to say
1: I'm not saying that I saw that I